Gospels together to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I'm going to read and preach verses 3 and 4 this evening. We're returning to this well-known psalm that we're working our way through here and there on Sunday evenings. Last time we considered the context of the psalm, David's confession of his sin after the confrontation of his sin by Nathan the prophet. We noticed the words David used to describe what he did, not words like mistake or misjudgment or indiscretion, but words like transgression and iniquity and sin. And we also noticed how he cried out to God for mercy according to God's steadfast love, according to God's abundant mercy. He asked God to blot out his transgressions and to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity and to cleanse him from his sin. And in verses 3 and 4, our verses for this evening, David expresses his sense of conviction of sin. And he expresses contrition towards God because his sin was against God. And we'll examine both of those things together, conviction or, and contrition, and consider how they apply to our own hearts and our own lives as God's people today. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would work conviction and contrition in our hearts this evening, just like you did with David so long ago. We don't want to be blind to our sin. We want to know our transgressions and know that against you we have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We want to know that so that we might confess our sins to you more deeply and be forgiven. So help us now as we come to your word together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David expresses first his conviction of sin in verse 3, and then his contrition in verse 4. Conviction of his sin and contrition towards God because his sin was indeed against God. So after Nathan the prophet came to David and told him the parable about the rich man who had lots of lambs, who took the poor man's only lamb so that he could feed his guest. And after Nathan told David, you are the man in the parable, David's eyes were opened and he saw his sin. He saw that it was indeed transgression and iniquity and sin and that he needed God's mercy and God's washing and cleansing. And now David expresses his conviction of sin. That is, he was convinced that he had sinned. He saw that he was condemned because of his sin. He knew that he was guilty as charged for his sin. He was under conviction. He says in verse 3 there, For 
I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He had just said in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And now he's reiterating the reason he needed to be washed and cleansed. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's why I need to be cleansed. So you don't go to all the trouble of giving your dog a bath unless your dog needs a bath, unless your dog is dirty. David knows he's dirty. He sees that he's filthy, he's unclean, and that is why he needs to be washed and cleansed. Wash me and cleanse me, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Our confession of sin will only be as deep as our conviction of sin. If conviction is shallow, then confession will be shallow. But if our conviction of sin is deep, then our confession of sin will be deep. So pray for conviction of sin when you've sinned so that your confession of sin can be deep and sincere and heartfelt. Pray for the ability to see how dirty and filthy and unclean you really are so that you can know how badly you need to be washed and made clean again through Christ David says, for I know my transgressions, for I know my transgressions. That's something we can really only say under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're not just saying, I know I've made some mistakes in my life. We're not just saying, I know I'm not perfect. We're not just saying, I know I've done some things I regret. I mean, who hasn't? No, we're saying, I know I've transgressed the law of God. I know I've rebelled against the king. I know I've sinned against the Lord. I know my transgression. I don't know all of my transgressions, but I know enough of them. I know them because the Holy Spirit has shown them to me. He has convicted me of them. He has caused me to see that they are my transgressions. They're not someone else's. They are mine. My fingerprints are all over them. My signatures on every one of them. They are my transgressions and mine alone. David is not just acknowledging that he feels guilty and ashamed. Anyone can do that. He's acknowledging that he has good reason to feel guilty and ashamed because he has sinned against God, because he has transgressed the law of God. He knows his transgressions. God knows our transgressions, but it's important that we know our transgressions too. And when we confess them to God, we're, of course, not telling him something he doesn't already know. We're telling him that we now know what he already knows, that we have transgressed his law. We cannot hide our transgressions from him. So when we are convicted of them, we should confess them to him. Proverbs 28 verse 14 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
David himself said in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's good for us to pray that God would cause us to know our transgressions, that the Holy Spirit would convict us of our sins. We don't want to have 2020 vision when it comes to everyone else's transgressions, but be blind to our own. We want to see our sin clearly so that we can confess our sin to God and be forgiven and cleansed. Is there anything you need to confess to God this evening that you haven't confessed already? Are you feeling the convicting work of the Spirit in your conscience, in your heart, even now? If so, don't conceal it. Confess it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says, take that promise to heart. Take God at His word and confess your sin to Him and receive His forgiveness. Notice what David says to God in the second half of verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Again, not other people's sin, but my sin. I see my sin, he's saying. If others' sins are ever before you and your sins are never before you, That's a problem. That's backwards. That's inside out and upside down. We should be more aware of our own sin than we are of the sin of others. We should be more concerned about our own sin than the sin of others. What was on the front of David's mind was not the sins of everyone else around him. What was on the front of his mind was his own sin. When it comes to other things in life, it should be others first. But when it comes to admitting sin, it should be me first. My sin is ever before me. Now, of course, it's true that when we confess our sin to God, He forgives our sin and washes away our sin. So it's not like the guilt of our sin just hangs over us all the time, like a little rain cloud above our heads that just stays there no matter where we go. No, Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So the guilt of our sin is gone. But the memory of our sin often remains. And our sin is ever before us in that sense. Not to haul us back into court for a charge that's already been cleared, but to humble us. And to remind us of God's grace given to us in the past and sufficient for us in the present and in the future. It's kind of like a scar. If you have a scar and you look at it, it's not a fresh wound. It's already healed, but it's still there to remind you of the wound and to remind you, more importantly, of the healing. Our sin is ever before us, not to hang over us and make us miserable, but to make us humble 
to remind us of the healing of God's abundant grace. David's sin was ever before him. Not the guilt of his sin, but the memory of his sin. Like a wound that had healed, but had left a scar. Matthew Henry wrote these very sobering words. He said, David never walked on the roof of his house without a penitent reflection on his unhappy walk there when thence he saw Bathsheba. He never lay down to sleep without a sorrowful thought of the bed of his uncleanness. Never sat down to meet, never sent his servant on an errand or took his pen in hand, but it put him in mind of his making Uriah drunk, the treacherous message he sent by him, and the fatal warrant he wrote and signed for his execution. My sin is ever before me, he says. One thing we can pray for, one simple thing in light of this, is that God would show us our sin. There are certain sins we can see clearly to be sure. We know we get angry sometimes. We know that we're not kind with our words always. We can be greedy or fearful when it comes to our money or our possessions. We know that our our thoughts are not always godly and, and so on. But we can pray that God would show us sins we're not seeing. Or even that he would show us the true sinfulness of the sins we do see. Or that he would expose the root underneath the bad fruit we see, which perhaps we're not aware of. We don't always know right away what's going on under the surface. But like a spiritual x-ray or MRI, God can show us what's going on in our hearts, down at the level of our motives and our desires. God can give us a deeper sense of the sinfulness of our sin. And that is something we can pray for and trust that he will give us in his grace. However much our sin is always before us, we have to keep God's grace always before us. His grace is greater than all our sin as we sing so joyfully together. As Robert Murray McChain once said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Richard Sibbs said that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. If all we ever dwell on is our sin and we don't remember God's grace, we're sort of like a sick person who reads all about their symptoms and their illness on, say, WebMD, but then closes the page without scrolling to the bottom where it talks about treatment options. The cure for our sin is the grace of our Savior. So if our sin is ever before us, we have to keep God's grace ever before us. And again, I think McChain's formula gets the ratio just about right. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. If our sin is ever before us, how much more do we need God's grace ever before us? Plenty of good verses in the Bible that would help us to do that. Let me give you a few that help us look to Christ and keep his grace in our field of view at all times. Psalm 103, verse eight. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A few verses later in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. One more, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, a well-known, well-loved passage in the Old Testament. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sin is ever before us. So let's keep God's grace ever before us. Well, that's about David's conviction of sin in verse 3. Let's look now at David's contrition towards God because his sin was against God. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. First, he says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned. Of course, he sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. He sinned against the rest of his family. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel, in a sense, since he was the king. But those were just the outer rings of the target. The bullseye was God. When we sin, we sin against God first and foremost. That's what makes sin, sin, that it's against God. It's rebellion against God. It's rejection of God. It's his law that we transgress. It's his command that we disobey. It's his word that we reject. It's his authority that we spurn. Remember what Joseph said to Potiphar's wife when she tempted him to commit adultery with her in Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? No, that's actually not what he says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what he says. How can I do this and sin against God? Because sin is against 
God first and foremost. That's what David himself came to see about his own sin. In 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 15, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David recognized that he sinned against the Lord. Nathan says that he had utterly scorned the Lord. Sin is personal. It's not just the breaking of an impersonal law. It's brazen rebellion against the lawgiver. The worst thing about sin is that it's against God. And the best motive for avoiding sin is that it's against God. When we confess our sin, it should be first and foremost to God. David could have apologized to Bathsheba and to his family and to Nathan and to every last Israelite in the whole kingdom. But until he apologized to God, he was still unclean in his sin because his sin was ultimately against God. So when you sin, let me encourage you, go to God first. Go straight to God. Don't go to anyone else until you've gone to God and confessed your sin to him. And then go to the person you've sinned against and ask their forgiveness. If you don't go to God first and receive his forgiveness and cleansing first, you may end up treating the person you sinned against like a priest, looking to them to absolve you of your sin and your guilt. But if you go to God first, then you can go to the other person with a heart that is calm and content in God's forgiving grace. And that way you can apologize to them in genuine love and not frantic neediness. Go to God first, then to man. Secondly, here in verse four, David says, I have done what is evil in your sight. Sin is evil. That's not a very politically correct thing to say, but it is a biblically correct thing to say. Sin is evil. It is evil in God's sight. Sin is not good, despite what the world tells us. Sin is not right, despite what our own hearts may tell us at times. Sin is not a delight, despite what the devil may whisper in our ear. That's what Adam and Eve found out the hard way. Sin is evil, it is vile, it is wicked, it is twisted, it is wrong. And it's important to recognize that evil, sin is evil in the sight of God. That's what we acknowledge in our first membership vow, isn't it? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? Because what matters most is not what man thinks, but what God thinks. So if our culture says that something is right, but Scripture says it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter what the world says, it matters what the Word says. If it's evil in the sight of the Lord, then it is evil. It's all too easy to soak up like a sponge the world's view of right and wrong. It's the air we breathe. It's the ecosystem we inhabit. It's atmospheric. And we need to make sure we are 
soaking our minds and hearts in the word each day, breathing in the air of God's beauty, God's grace, God's holiness and righteousness so that we come to see things the way God sees them, which is the way they really are, and so that we see our sin as evil in his sight. Thirdly, in verse four, David says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David acknowledges that he has sinned against God so that God is shown to be right and David is shown to be wrong, to have done wrong. So that everyone can see and know that the judge is not corrupt, that the judge is a good judge, a fair judge, a just judge, and that it's the accused who's corrupt, not the judge. So that's David's contrition towards God. First, his conviction of his sin and then his contrition towards God because his sin was against God. I want to do two more things in the few minutes we have left. First, I want to sort of tie all this together by looking at the chapter in the confession on repentance and then a few points of application at the close. So if you'd pull out your hymnals for just a minute and turn to page 856 in the back, we're going to look briefly at the chapter on repentance in the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 856. And I want to read this chapter in light of what we've considered together this evening from verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 51. Page 856, Westminster Confession of Faith, excellent summary of biblical teaching on all these topics. About the topic of repentance, says the following, paragraph 1. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Paragraph two. By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. David certainly saw and sensed the filthiness and the odiousness of his sins, not just because of their consequences, but because they were contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. That's why he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And at the same time, David also knew that God was full of mercy and steadfast love. And so he grieved for his sin and hated his sin and turned from his sin to God. Later in the psalm, Psalm 51, is where he talks about essentially purposing and endeavoring to walk with God in all the ways of his commandments. So we see our sin. We remember the mercy of God in Christ promised to those who repent. And we turn from our sin to God and walk with God by his enabling grace. Paragraph three. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin 
or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. So we're not saved by our repentance, but we're not saved without repentance. God says to repent of sin and believe in Christ for salvation. Turning to Christ in faith necessarily involves turning from sin in repentance. Repentance is not a work. It is an evangelical grace, as it says in paragraph one, a gospel grace, and yet repentance is as necessary to salvation as faith. We are called to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, two wings of the same airplane. Paragraph four. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. And what a great truth that is. The first part is sobering, isn't it? Every sin deserves damnation, no matter how, quote unquote, small. But the second part is reassuring. That no sin is so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Paragraph 5. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. It's one of my favorite parts of the confession. Repent of your particular sins, particularly. We'll come back to that in a moment. Paragraph 6. As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy, so he that scandalizeth his, his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love receive him. So go to God first, but then also go to man and confess and be reconciled to those you've sinned against. So a very helpful chapter, picking up several of the themes we've seen already in Psalm 51. Two final thoughts as we close this evening. First, as paragraph five said, we shouldn't just repent generally We should repent of particular sins, particularly. In other words, don't just say to God, I'm sorry for all my sins. That's a fine thing to say to God, but it would be better to say, I'm sorry for my anger, for losing my temper in that situation. Please forgive me for being more concerned about my own comfort and ease than about serving others and for getting angry when I didn't get my way. We should repent of particular sins particularly. We should go right up to that particular weed and pull it up by the roots. Second and finally, we should always keep the gospel in view. Always keep the grace and mercy of Christ in the gospel in view. True repentance 
involves seeing our sin, but it also involves seeing our Savior and the promise of forgiveness to those who repent. True repentance is not about groveling before the judge, hoping that he'll go easy on us. It's about grieving before our Father, knowing that he is ready to forgive. Grieving the fact that we've sinned against him who has been so kind to us and turning from our sin, knowing that we will be received and reconciled through Christ. It's upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent that we can truly be repentant and throw ourselves on his mercy. We should always keep the gospel in view when we repent. That's why David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, and so on. He repents of his sin in the light of God's abundant mercy. He confesses his sin in the light of God's steadfast love. When we sin, it's not as if we are back in court facing the judge. It's not as if our justified status is now in question. It's not as if our marriage to Christ is on the rocks. No, what happened in the courtroom happened once for all. Our justified status will never change. We are still the bride of Christ. And it's the mercy of our bridegroom that we must always keep in view in regard to repentance. It's the kindness of our Father that leads us to repentance. And we repent, we truly turn from our sin when we keep the gospel in view. David knew his transgressions and his sin was ever before him. And he knew that he had sinned against God. And yet it was the abundant mercy of God and the steadfast love of God that was the basis of his repentance and what led him to go to God for forgiveness. And it's the same with us. The grace of God in the gospel is what leads us to repentance. Because we know that God will keep his promise. His promise will never fail even when we fail. When we confess our sin to him, he will be faithful to that promise to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we need. And that is what he will provide. Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would grant us true repentance. Like we see in Psalm 51 with David, like we considered from the confession, may repentance not just be a formality with us, but may it be from the heart. Please grow each one of us in this area and help us to always remember your promise. You have promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen.